0: Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth, trusted authority in executive and transactional liability and president of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services, now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Broker Network. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Lauren Parthimos, principal of Cotter. With offices on both coasts, Cotter helps organizations mobilize their people to achieve unimaginable results at unprecedented speeds. And I got to tell you, for a marketing thing, that's a lot to unpack in one sentence. So that's a very efficient intro right there. Lauren, welcome to M&A Masters. Thanks for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: Now, before we get into Cotter, which is a major consulting firm uh, at the forefront of change, let's just start with you. How did you get to this point in your career?
1: Absolutely, so I like to say I kind of grew up in the banking industry. So I started my career off in one of those typical, but no longer really exist bank training programs, working on the lending side, transitioned into M&A myself, doing fundraising for startups, then working with the tier one investment banks on their processes and operations and how to actually optimize and be efficient. And really throughout my entire time through each and every one of those phases within the industry, I really just found myself scratching my head as to why everything was so KPI focused and why things weren't working and really leaning on my previous role and what I was doing back in my college days, which was being a sailing coach and really trying to motivate people and teaching people how to continue going despite obstacles that you're seeing. And I really realized that that human element in terms of, change and how you're dealing with the day-to-day is just missing in so many organizations and it's that unpredictable factor that really can make or break an organization. So when I was looking for my next opportunity, I came across Cotter and that light bulb moment happened where I just realized, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one who thinks that. And not only is there are a whole body of work behind this, but it's operationalized and it's actually out of in the industry. And it's not just theories talking about potential research, but it's actually happening in the real world. So i say the short and sweet is that I just kind of was trying to find my home in terms of people who understood that change isn't just about financial success metrics, that if you don't have that integrated body of work underneath it that takes into consideration all factors, then you're not going to be successful.
0: Well, I think that, you know, change is at the core of M&A, all right? And, and the objective with a good M&A strategy is it's it's a, a situation where you've got a, it's not company A buying company B, and now you've got something, okay? It is one group of people agreeing to partner with another group of people with the objective that, look, the whole is going to be greater than the sum of its parts, and because we've got people at, at the core of this okay that's changed people are resistant to change and so it's always fascinating to see how you address that a lot of organizations just you know they they muscle through that however they can and you know they've got that attitude well you know we've gone through this before and we, we've done it before we'll do it again and you know suck it up let's go and it, it's just so counterintuitive to what's really happening at And so now we come to Cotter, and it's Cotter with a K, which was formed after Dr. John Cotter, Cotter, excuse me, and he's a leading expert in leading change, not just change itself, but leading it. And so talk about Cotter, the organization, and what kind of services it's about on on a macro level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the foundation of our business really was John Cotter's body of work. He's a former Harvard Business School professor that was doing extensive research around leadership and what makes organizations successful. And in the 90s, he published an article called Why Transformations Fail. And it was 10 years of research, over 100 organizations studied and realized that 70% of those organizations actually failed some metric that leadership had established in terms of what does success look like in terms of this transformation. It could be went over budget, went over time, but the ones that were successful had this foundation of what he called the eight accelerators and essentially these various different pieces and it's not steps that you can kind of check off like a waterfall method but various different pieces with an ecosystem that when activated means that you'll be more successful and so what we do is actually bring those eight accelerators to life when we partner with organizations and especially in the M field. We work a lot on the post deal integration side. Yeah. Really, really a function of that's when people start thinking about culture. It's not because that's when we should be brought in. And well, we they're, are they're not running,
0: running into them. they're not running into the obstacles yet. Okay, exactly. They're, the they're obstacles haven't been about, yet. you know you know coming together, and then once you're together, okay, now what? So yeah.
1: Absolutely. So what we like to do and what really sets us apart, I think, is that we partner with organizations. We do not come in as a consulting firm and say, here's our plan, here's what the research we did, here's statistics, plop the plan down, leave and call it a day. We work directly with people from across the organization. So that diagonal cross-section, all the way from senior leaders to those junior people on the ground to come up together with plans that will actually make a change successful. And when you're thinking about that integration process, worst case scenario, you're going to have a group of people who just feel a sincere sense of loss when they go through any of these integrations. Because realistically speaking, you're dealing with a body of people, and this isn't the leadership, but the actual employees on the ground doing the work and making the organization successful that have just had their futures determined for them. They no longer have control and they're no longer able to have any certainty around what's going on because it's just a flash band-aid rip most of the time. And so that, if you read our latest book that came out, this Summer Change, we talk a lot about that in terms of the survive and thrive mindsets. And announcements like that really activate that survive. So you immediately have a rush of cortisol already through your body. You're not able to really think strategically anymore as an individual. And you really are just in that fight or flight mode in terms of how do you do things. So we try to not only acknowledge that that is a realistic possibility, but actively counteract it to make sure that people aren't thrown into that, but come up with ways for your own organization to move away from that into that thrive mindset where you can actually think creatively and be more future oriented in terms of how you can be successful.
0: Well, it's interesting because you talk about the people. Again, we're falling back on this. People are at the center of this, but it's interesting because there are inter- there are other shows out there that they interview uh, firms that merged together, entrepreneurs that sold their company and merge. And one of the common questions comes up, When did you tell your people? and And a lot of them agonized over that because, you know, what was the outcome? Obviously, you've got that fight or flight. Uh, immediate response, particularly when this process has been going on for months, and then the announcement comes to the to the team like within days of it, ha- or in some cases hours of, of it taking effect. So you've got that natural thing. The other thing that's interesting, I appreciate this, is that what Dr. Cotter did was he was looking if if uh, integration didn't go well, well, rather than looking at the ones that failed, which is easy to do. Try to pull out the what was common about the ones that succeeded because that's the formula to move forward rather than you know Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, uh, you know others of uh, those deals. So that's a that's a unique thing, and this whole issue now where you guys have and again we're still macro but the science have changed and, and mm. there, there's an awareness there and I think as more understanding happens that's fantastic. And that's leading, you know, where, where Cotter's kind of leading, leading the chain, you know, the, the group on that. Um, One of the things that you and I had spoken about before, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but it is a big, you know, kind of California (laughs) wishy-washy kind of thing is this topic of culture and how, you know, Cotter, one of the things that you guys look at is, you know, the importance of it. And, It's beyond this whole thing of, well, these guys dress, you know, have a dress code and these people don't. It goes way deeper than that. So talk about culture a little bit for me.
1: Absolutely. And I will say that one of the things that is really important is that we don't deal with culture in the sense that that's the only thing we care about, but that's how we differentiate ourselves because there's all, we obviously care about business practices and what are the strategies and processes behind something, but culture should always be tied to that strategic objective. And there should always be that measurement going forward. It's just as important as how we do the work. It's not a fun little tear off to the side. So when we think about culture, it's really the behaviors of that organization. So how are decisions made? How are you communicating with people if you're a people manager? What are those practices around actually growing the organization? How do you handle professional development? What are your policies around Whether it be feedback or how you're actually just going about the day. Are you a nine to five only organization? Do you work outside of those bounds? And it's just all those tiny little behaviors that then culminate into this larger topic of culture. And it's not that kind of wishy-washy California, as you mentioned earlier, but it's all those little tiny practices. How much does your vision come to life? In your day to day, or does it not? If it doesn't, that's okay. But it's more of an acknowledgement of how that actually is brought in, and understanding the foundations of that is really what's important.
0: Yeah, and, and the issue with culture also is, as as you and I'm I'm stealing from you from an earlier <laughs> conversation, but it's the importance of bringing joy and higher achievement in. It's this isn't some esoteric, you know, we're we're going to have a company look, and this is it. It's really you know, perform, this enhances performance.
1: Absolutely. Culture is not just a piece of paper where someone wrote down, you're like, we are a technology-focused firm where we love collaborating, yeah. and then it gets thrown into a drawer and never spoken of again. Culture, whether it's defined or not, is how people within your organization actually operate. And that's the key of success and knowing how does that actually work? And if you change some of these levers in terms of how do we slowly migrate people into one direction or maybe quickly in another in order to pull levers to improve performance for the organization as a whole.
0: And, and the thing, and they're, God, not alone in this, you're just at the front <laughs> of the line on this, but this culture really is trying, uh, organizations are trying to see if they can quantify it, if they mm-hmm. can measure it. And then see if they can harness it as a strategic advantage and and I think um you know the dynamic of the workforce now is an unmistakable element of the outgrowth of culture, and let's just talk about that where we had the scenario uh, in the banking industry
1: absolutely, so you'll see it easily in the financial services industry, where what used to be that exciting field of investment banking, where you had all the graduates wanting to funnel themselves in and fight for those top tier positions in banks, are no longer going towards those at the same rate. They're going towards fintech, those various different organizations that could be startups, they could be larger at this point, starting to get some extra funding and are really expanding, but it's the hallmark behind it is really because the cultures are very different. Those, yeah. The thought process behind having to work those long hours for the same amount of pay and the same amount of incredibly hot or the hierarchical demoralizing what can be seen as demoralizing for this generation environment versus one where they can create their own path and they can start defining things for themselves is much more exciting for these generations. So there's a huge shift in the talent pool in the younger generations wanting to find something new and culture is really at the heart of it.
0: But with cultures also it's not just you know retaining talent and keeping people but you've got to be aware of it when you're bringing one force to join another force and and you've got to you know the potential clash of cultures there and you've experienced that. We'll
1: talk about that real quick. Absolutely. So we had one organization that it was two competitors who were top in their field. Unfortunately, I can't give the actual names. And I would love to give actual details because the details are just 10 times more impactful. But when we anonymize it, you can't really see that full picture. But two huge top of the industry competitors formed into one, merged together. And as we were going through their integration strategy and what really needed to come out of it, we realized really early on that if we were gonna make a proof point of this integration in terms of how to be successful, we needed to generate wins early on. And I would say that's fairly typical across the board. You always wanna be generating wins to boost morale and create that snowball effect of moving forward. And the way that we were going to do it and be most successful and most impactful was to get the sales teams working together. Because if the sales teams could work together, who were rivals and did not like each other, if we can get them on the same team, collaborating and actively working as a unit, then that makes the proof point for the rest of the organization to say, you know what? They can do it. Why can't I? So, what we did is after we brought them together, we really allowed them and created a space where they can decide what that collaboration looks like and decide what their path forward is. It's like I said, it's not us coming in and detailing out high level plans. It's working with the organization to create that for them. So what they decided to do is that they were all going to sell one product together. And it did not matter what industry you focused on. So they were selling products across a variety of different subsectors, and they all went back and said, you know what? By the way, have you seen XYZ in the market? Really exciting. I know it doesn't apply to you, but maybe look into it. Might be of some interest. And through that, and all of them deciding, we have a goal of we want to sell X amount of this product. We're all going to do it together. It doesn't matter who does it. Let's do this as a team. It ended up being by far the largest selling product in that industry.
0: And so say you get the results right there. I, I just, it, you know, when you've got the uber hyper-competitive forces, okay, now they're forced to work together, okay? And if they can work, then everybody else can. But it was the, what really struck me about this is not only, I mean, it's easy to see also because we're in marketing and sales, we, we appreciate this. But it's also that you didn't take this universal approach where, okay, we are going to change everything. Okay, yeah. you just, let's just get, Prioritize a couple of things, and like you say, get the wins and moving forward. I think that's what happens is everybody appreciates that as they're bringing on onboarding services and so forth. It's just get those little wins to move down. Let's get those first downs and and move along. We don't have to have the big long pass because a lot of times that that could delay things, and then people are just they're again in that space of they don't know things are changing, they don't know how it's factoring, but they don't see anything happening. And then you get nervous there. So I really appreciate how, how you guys can break that down.
1: Absolutely. I would say one of the most important things that often gets overlooked in terms of these plans is that it's just saying, okay, we introduced you guys to each other. We're done. Yeah. High five or something along those lines. And it's culture and the people integration isn't taken into the same level of detail as you see technology integration or process integration, which does need to be considered at a high level. and. If you think of Roger's Law of Diffusion when you're regarding innovations, it's the same principle that you need to start with a group of people who are willing to accept that change, create those early wins and proof points, because as you create and generate those small wins and create momentum, you're creating that rationale for the people who are more resistant to change and wanting to step back to say, you know what, this group did it. They were successful. I'm bought in. And then when you get those people who are partially resistant to change, you start getting the people who are very resistant to change and you start making a movement that way. It's not forcing it, but it's creating proof points of success around that entire process.
0: Define or give a profile of your, of Cotter's ideal client. Where, where are you looking uh, as, as the ideal client where you can make these changes?
1: Absolutely. I think, Realistically speaking, at Cotter, we consider ourselves generalists, but what we really like to focus on are those calcified industries, the ones who haven't necessarily changed yet and are looking for that new generation to be that catalyst to move forward. And that's really where we're going to see our most success. I would say anyone who is in a leadership position where they are already having these thoughts and feelings around this is, I want to change differently. I've done this time and time again without success by going through the traditional methods, let me try something new, that's going to be our target audience. Because if we have someone within an organization who is willing to try some of the things that, from a traditionalist standpoint, sound a little off the wall, but are proven time and time again by both research and outcomes from our clients, that they do work. And we need that mentality.
0: Yeah. And this doesn't happen unless you get buy-in from the top, obviously. Yeah. Now, Lauren, you mentioned calcified industries. Um, give us an example of a few others. You mentioned banking. What besides banking would be calcified?
1: Absolutely. I would say healthcare as a whole, very much in that wanting to transition phase and wanting to accelerate phase, but hasn't necessarily gotten there yet. Very much government entities still working on how to actually become as efficient as humanly possible within their structures. You'll see it in higher education, who are still very slow moving on various different pieces, depending on the cycles that they're in, in terms of their semesters. You'll And you do see it across the board. And you also see, you'll see it in manufacturing at times and supply chain. It's very much, I would say, a universal piece for all the ones that aren't talked about in the news necessarily on a regular mm-hmm. basis. I would say the rest of them are still looking to really accelerate.
0: Talk about the onboarding process, how long it takes and things like that.
1: Absolutely. So onboarding for us, when we first start working with a client, we take a couple of months to actually do that discovery work. And discovery isn't just kind of sitting in the background, reading some old documents. Yes, we do do that. We need to do that and do our research to see what's actually happened. But it also can consist of doing culture change surveys and actually figuring out what that network within your organization looks like and how ready is your organization what are the general sentiments in your organization going through and doing stakeholder interviews and not just interviewing leadership, but interviewing various different people within the organization who are doing the work to really understand what that landscape looks like. And then going into an alignment session to really define out what is your big opportunity in terms of this. And that's not saying It's going to replace a mission or vision statement because they do not, they supplement it because an opportunity is a window of time. It is a strategically held short term opportunity where you can charge towards that. And everything that the organization does should support that opportunity in terms of achieving it. And that opportunity will then flow into your mission and vision and your strategic objectives that you want to achieve for the 10 year vision or the. 30-year vision, depending on what you have.
0: Gotcha. Now, I appreciate Rome wasn't built in a day. Right? <laughs> so this is a, you know an overnight fix, but a matter of weeks, months, ballpark?
1: I would say months. It depends on after we go through that discovery phase of a few months, we go through and define custom plans and roadmaps for an organization okay. based off of the level of need. If we're doing a one off, you've purchased an entity, great. You've got the target company you need to integrate it in, much shorter time frame than building out a conglomerate where someone purchased a ton of various different entities and now you're trying to make one holistic unit. So really depends on what landscape we're dealing with. I'd say about a year timeframe, we really like to work through organizations and do a lot of this work on that shorter end. Not because it takes that entire year long necessarily. It depends on the organization again. But more so, embedding behaviors take does take time. So you can have that switch. And if you read anything on habits, you can quickly change, but then you can regress back if those yeah. behaviors aren't. Yeah. Reinforced. Yeah. So it's doing making sure that that repetition is there and making sure that that reinforcement is there across the board in terms of how you incentivize is there in order to make it as successful as possible.
0: Gotcha. Well, and, and I think that this is important. And one of the things I just pulled from you is that this isn't just limited to strategic acquirers where they're going to make an acquisition here or there. You could literally have this for private or private equity clients where they have multiple very diverse portfolio companies. And although they don't work hand in hand, the various portfolios uh, intermix with each other that often. Many PE firms are trying to do that. That's one of their strategic advantages is seeing how they can take leverage strengths and uh, to overcome weaknesses among the portfolio companies. We want to get you know our culture, not just within the PE firm, or the investors, but within the portfolio, across the, the breadth of the portfolio. And so I could see that being something that would be very, very helpful.
1: Absolutely. It's something that we've been talking to clients about in recent years. And I would say, if you think about venture instead of P, for example, Mm -hmm. just making all of those bets and saying, not all of them are gonna pan out. We'll have a couple of successes that are runaway successes to pay for the investments that don't necessarily work out, but how can you actually structure your portfolio to complement each other and actually work together as a cohesive unit, not necessarily from going as formal as a joint venture or creating those agreements, but how can you actually work your portfolio to maximize and create cultures where it is okay to collaborate with each other.
0: So, I mean, th- this is great because it's not just, culture isn't just micro here, it's macro on the other side. And that's a great place where you can be brought in because you're you're proven at that level, you've done it at that level as well. Well, Lauren, we're you know, having this conversation dr- just after uh, first of the year. So we're all getting used <laughs> to change on writing 2022 now in the dates instead of 2021. So it's going to take a little while for people to do, but we'll all change and then we'll <laughs> sit in 2023. But what do you see going forward, either with Cotter or macro change? And then what do you see for the coming year?
1: I would say in general, and this isn't necessarily for 2022, but it's been a general progression in recent years that there's more acceptance around what's considered the quote unquote softer side of deals and culture. You're not as frequently getting that eye roll when you say culture in a boardroom as you might have 10, 15 years ago where people are like, oh, it's culture. Oh, okay, wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> like That's not necessarily yeah. happening anymore. And for example, we were working with a firm, and within a year, they actually referenced culture at a 22% increase in that one-year timeframe after we started working with them and directly targeted in their annual report. The reason behind their incredible success during the pandemic was because of the culture that they had fostered beforehand, and culture is more and more seen as that differentiator within an industry to say, we have a strong culture where people want to work. And especially when you're starting to think about the Great Recession and as people are leaving organizations, when you're doing an integration, and as we talked about a little bit before, doing things to people and activating that survive mindset, you have a more vulnerable employee population who is more quickly going to have that thought bubble of, If I can't define this for myself and I no longer have control, why don't I leave? And it's already prevalent, but it's even more so in these target companies. So something to absolutely be aware of as you're going through in the next year of how do you really retain the talent and the culture of your target and integrate some of their best practices and their culture into the acquiring company and create the best of both.
0: I think you mentioned the softer side, the two biggest developments uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, you've got ESG and the awareness of that, and then culture is hand in glove with that. So I, I, I agree completely with you as, as that going forward. Lauren Parthmos, it's been a pleasure having you here. For our audience members who are interested in this, how can our audience members find you and Cotter?
1: Absolutely. So you can find Cotter on our website at cotterinc.com have a lot of resources there and various different articles or background research that we've done. You can find me personally at lauren.parthmas at cotterinc.com. I will not go through the trouble of spelling that. You can easily look on your podcast page. Check check on the show notes. it would be there. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to speak with anyone who's interested personally.
0: great. Lauren Parthmas of Cotter. Thank you so much for being here today.
1: Thanks for having me, it's been a pleasure. Great.